Well, welcome back uh, to another episode of the Better Conflicts podcast series on conflict styles with Susanna Schuller, Director of Training and Consultancy at CEDA. Um, it's appropriate that this episode should be about competing because in last week's episode, we talked about its polar opposite, avoiding. So, Susanna, without, without further ado, competing. This is probably one of the most interesting styles or one that um, people know the most about or are most intrigued by because it's sort of made glamorous and sexy by things like Harvey Specter and suits. That's a perfect segue. First of all, I like suits, of course, and because of the archetype. But we must never forget Donna, who is um, for suits fans, who I think is the perfect collaborator. But we come to that, it's a cliffhanger in the collaborating podcast. So yeah, it is, as you say, it's much more socially acceptable to be competing than avoiding, for example. And as we mentioned, I think in the first podcast, that the conflict preferences Thomas and Kilman identified have a lot to do with social acceptability. And that informs how we choose our preference. So we're not born with a style. We, we might be born with a little bit of competing because we want to survive. So we will definitely do everything as a baby to get attention because that means food. And that behavior might actually not change. It might look more sophisticated, but in the end, it's all about survival, isn't it? So, yeah, competing is, again, when we look at the, the axis of assertiveness and cooperativeness, it's definitely the highest in assertiveness, that style, but again, not much in relationship. And meaning when we overuse that. Again, we, we always have to see short-term versus long-term use and what the costs and benefits are. Because we're not advocating that people um, adopt one style and use only that style from now until they you know, die. It's about, having a, it's about being more strategic in how you approach difficult situations and, 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 and conflict. Um, so looking at competing, what are the sort of, I mean, it's probably quite obvious, but some of the telltale signs of someone who is or adopts a competing style? So competing means that's classically um, one of those traits, competitors are the so-called decision makers, um, whereas a lot of other people make decisions as well, but competitors clearly promote that they make decisions. So it's someone who in a given situation would not hesitate to do or make a decision and live with the consequences. Someone who is not so faced about what might others think about that. Will I be popular when I do that? So it can be like leading, having a leadership function, it can also mean that when you are in an emergency situation that someone who arrives first tells others, okay, you, you do CPR, you do that. I don't know, someone who, who just has the overview and um, gets things done yeah. and expresses that as well. So the language is not long-winded. It's let's do that. I will. So the I and the will will be used often in English. Mm -hmm. So it's less I think, it's more I will, it's more, much more assertive. It's assertive and that's one of those key words, which again, in my experience uh, with mediation and conflict management, is a, gun, a trigger word. And it has not been around for such a long time because 
participants also asked me, what does it actually mean? And how is it translated? Just to translate it into German or French or Spanish is quite a big thing. It technically means to assert yourself, means that you know what you want and you will stand for that and you might even fight for that. And it's often, when we read Sheryl Sandberg's um, book about how women and men negotiate, it would be seen positive if a man does it. I'm now going into the whole uh, discrimination area, I know. Sorry for that, it's another pet topic. And when <laughs> women do it, it's often seen as aggressive. Or bolsy, so or, this, yeah. So I was once asked when I accepted a... Um, conflict coaching assignment in Israel for a, for a company there. They, um, I had a, I wouldn't call it a recruitment interview. It, I was already hired, but um, the CEO wanted to hear first because also hearing that I would be German said, okay, do you think the Israelis are assertive or aggressive? And I said, well, that's a fantastic question. I really would like to reflect or discuss that with you because I've never really thought about that. I think it might be two sides of the same medal. So you can, if you overdo the assertiveness and do neglect completely the relationship part, then it's for sure aggressive. And when you still have in your mind that there are also others, and especially in an organization as a CEO, you have to make a decision, but you also uh, include what the what the others think, then it's possibly more on the assertive side. Mm -hmm. So it's quite an interesting, yeah. Yeah, and I wanted to go back to this sort of social perception because that's something we touched on quite heavily um, in the last episode about avoiding, how it's seen as, as a negative thing and people who are avoiders uh, are seen as, as cowards or as weak or as pushovers. And actually it's quite a, a stark and um, powerful moment when people realize actually they have avoiding tendencies and now they have to confront the fact that maybe they don't see themselves in a, in a particularly positive way. Um, we touched on it already, but competing is, is, is much more socially acceptable in our society, is that right? Yeah, and also in organizations, when we work with non-for-profits, they often feel a little sting, oh my God, I'm competing. and but they would feel more comfortable with that than reading they would be more avoiding. So competing, but it's also seen if you look, we always do an exercise where we ask people, how do you perceive someone who uh, uses that style? It's often fairly negative as well. So it means someone who is egoistic, who doesn't care about others, uh, does quick decisions without really thinking about the consequences, is cutting out other opinions. So there's a lot of um, negative image involved as well. Mm -hmm. It's not a totally clean style. <laughs> no, I mean, we, we, we've touched on the, the benefits of the style um, already. And in the last, anyway, in the previous episodes, we've looked at what's the impact of overuse of the style or you know, it being very prevalent in a um, team or organization or department. So... Um, and, you know, we talked about organizational design. Uh, if a competitive approach to difficult situations or conflict becomes widespread and the go-to in a team or organization, what are the consequences of that? Yeah, so that's an organization where, you, I don't know if you've ever experienced these um, sales meetings. There is 
a lot of films caricaturize that. So you go into a sales meeting and you're only valued by how much money did you bring in? And everyone is like competing and really um, cranking up the numbers and faking it just to be seen as the, the top dog. So it, it's, it's an organization with a lot of ego and ego, I translate ego as extinguishing great opportunities. So there's not much space for, for creation, creativity. And mm-hmm. often people think if I'm not competitive, I'm seen as a weak person or vulnerable, where that doesn't have to be the case. It's often organizations where um, the, the outcome and the financials are more important than relationships. And that's, again, a culture question as well, because some cultures value um, outcomes more than long-term relationship successes as well, which when you see in survival of organizations, the mix is what makes uh, organizations survive. So the super competitive organizations have quite a long, uh, quite a short um, lifespan. So there are a lot of studies on that. A lot of testosterone is there, and I don't want to say that only men, but it's a male energy, but not meaning it has to be men or women. So it's it's quite hierarchical at times as well. Mm. So I haven't come across, I must say, many mainly competitive organizations. I have often, so organizations which are, which I say are not entirely healthy, often have a mix of avoiding competing and accommodating. So when you have just the access, so when you have lots of competitors, there are people who either please and say yes, or you have people who don't engage. And you have those who make the decisions. So you cut out the whole area of compromise or collaboration. So that is what, what I normally, what we normally see, that combination. So it's not just competing. And before we go into look at um, some sort of advice and best practice or tips for, for people who who um, perhaps think they're competing too much. What's the value for an individual who, or, or a manager of a team who recognizes there is a, a tendency amongst themselves or, or as a group? What's the value in sort of addressing that and starting to, um, as we've talked about, again, move from style to strategy, from not overusing the style, but to deploying it you know, when it's going to be most effective rather than as the default um, off-the-shelf approach? So the value is that you have already people working in your team who dare to disagree. I think that's could you could really acknowledge that as a benefit and tell them, well, that's already there. And then to see, okay, how can we channel that, that we are outcome-driven And what could we do to improve the other side so that we can really cover the whole spectrum? So the work, the value is for a leader of a highly competitive environment that you, again, when I imagine the axis, so you have to move people more towards the upper line, towards like collaboration and defining the value of cooperation rather than going down and say, yeah, you have... We have to we have to say yes more often. It's not about saying yes. It's like it's almost how to channel your energy. So competitors normally are activists. They want to get things done, and the value is you have a lot of energy in motion, 
And as a good leader, you um, have the positive problem how to channel that effectively before they kill each other. Yeah. And in your experience of, of training thousands of people you know, around the world in different companies and cultures, is, are people with competitive tendencies, is it often a, a facade or a mask for, for maybe insecurities or uh, is it often used as, as a sort of ploy or, or a front to detract from, from something else? Well, that's a deep human question. I think we, we all uh, wear masks and each preference tells a lot about who we are and who we are not. So I would say it comes off from a school. So how have you been raised and what have you been told in school, in university? What is, what is a good behavior? Do you, have you been taught to fight? and to bully, or have you been yourself bullied? If you go to the extreme competitor, it's a bully. So that would be a very negative behavior. And not if you're competing, you're not automatically a bully. That is, I want to have that quite clear. The perception is often that. But that means you have learned that if someone really um, asserts themselves or is aggressive, they get what they want, so you copy that. And you've seen that thousand times happening, you will assume that. So yes, there might be the insecurity, there is no other way to get what I want but by being aggressive or shouting. And in my experience, for example, a concrete example I did um, when I worked in Belgium and Switzerland, we did peer mediation. So we worked with teenagers who were considered as highly aggressive and trained them as mediators. And it was um, so heartwarming to see because they were unhappy to be the bully and the so-called aggressive, they found a channel how they could transform that into assertiveness and actually say, okay, people recognize me as a social leader. So I'm now a mediator. I have in a way the power to help other people to resolve conflicts. That's a good use of my competitive style rather than beating someone. And if I go back to, to organizations, a lot of people who think a good management style is to control and and bully find it fairly liberating that they see there is a much less aggressive style to achieve the same and still be a good leader so mm -hmm. i think most most styles you overuse you uncover a lot of insecurity and unhappiness i haven't met anyone in my mediation career and conflict management career who was really happy with using just one style all the time. Uh, it's, it's a shame that our society and our, our media glamorise probably the worst or the, the most negative aspects of competing. I mean, we mentioned Harvey Specter, but, you know, and, and programmes like Mad Men um, and, you know, political programmes like the House of Cards and so forth, um, it sort of it makes for great TV, but not for great management or collaborative practice, does it? No, that is true. There, there are very few programs. There are more and more. And again, to quote Margaret Heffernan again, one uh, we mentioned her a couple of times because she has another TED talk, another book, where she talks about cooperation is how our brain is wired, and we're looking always the cooperation always outwins every other way in life, so even competition. And another um, famous person like William Urey who wrote Getting to Yes, 
in getting to yes or getting past no, or that the, the most important book I think he wrote, which is The Third Side, he speaks about the, the, the benefit of non-competing all the time and that the human brain isn't actually wired to do that. And if you look at the history of war and see it as a 24-hour day, the, the time humankind spend on war is just three minutes before 12. So the rest of the day, since we exist, is about how to cooperate. And at times, possibly, tribes killed each other and things like that happen. But in the end, it was how to survive together. It's, a, it's, a really, it's, it's really interesting because that's probably not the perception that people have. Or, or yeah, or what is, what is viewed as I don't know, cool or powerful, or what people want to emulate, because of a variety of reasons. But it, it's very interesting. And moving on slightly, with you know, one of the reasons I, I said it last time for us doing this podcast series is we want to get people, um, you know, be more aware about their style and that of others, and how to be more strategic. But also, um, for people listening to this, saying, oh, I recognise some of that behavior in myself, how can I go about um, changing or, or improving how I approach difficult situations or conflict? For someone who, who is a competitor, what would be your advice you know, to help them sort of immediately see different results or better results in, in how they deal with conflict and, and difficult situations? Yeah, so what I said beforehand, the, to discover the value, and that's what I would always mirror to someone who's competitive, you have already the the respect of people, good or bad, but you have already you are already a leader type. So if you, so let's say the a quick win would be just to to practice silence more often. Just when you're in a meeting, make a deliberate effort to talk to everyone in the meeting, and you want an opinion from everyone. So make it a rule. Checklist: Have I asked everyone? And to assure that, and then you will get a wealth of opinions. And then only then you will give yours. So never give yours first, always give yours last. And another one is to, to really um, put yourself in, in the position of others, like the change of perspective, which is often quite a difficult one. Just to think, okay, if uh, that person that always says yes and might trigger me totally, because I think, why does that person never contradict me? A lot of competitors actually want debate, but they don't get it. Is to find a channel. How can I connect with that person that triggers me most? And I think it's this thing about patience and effective pause to slow down, to go fast. So to practice that, it almost sounds like a samurai wisdom. But uh, to to be uh, to practice um, a slower pace at times mm -hmm. and and mm -hmm. and do that and you will discover quite a lot and, mm -hmm. and you will see people will speak up and there might be some stories where you can show vulnerability. Of course, that's a very difficult subject for a lot of leaders. I can't appear vulnerable, but think about stories that show you it doesn't have to be. I don't know when you made a complete fool of yourself, but there might be moments where you can admit a mistake and that and see what it does to others. It actually gives you much more respect. So think about what are the stories you have where you can admit that. And I give an example, Margaret Heffernan quotes in her book, 
when she talks about um, it's beyond reason, I think. It's Torres is one of the Spanish wine firm. They have a black book of mistakes. And everyone from the CEO to whatever employee has to write in their mistakes they made. And when you start there as a new employee, you get the, the black book of mistakes and you can read what mistakes have been made. And they ask you for two obligations. First, read the book. Second, don't commit those mistakes again. They have been made. But you will see there are a lot of leaders and managers admitting their mistakes and that is a huge empowerment to say, okay, we are allowed to make mistakes here. So that prevents an organization to go per default to competition, for example, or to be competitive. There's another case uh, in, in uh, when we talk about black box thinking, another book where a doctor admits a mistake he made. I don't know if the person in question died, but he, he was totally aware about his con the consequences that he might face and the hospital forced him not to say it, but he did it anyway. And thanks to him, that particular mistake is now on a checklist so it can't happen ever again. Mm -hmm. So I think there is sometimes when we go into whistleblowing again, so there is sometimes a moment where you have to, especially as a competitor, competitive person, you might have more courage because you used to assert yourself to, to be a role model of showing vulnerability that will then empower others to step up. Because for me, the whole style to strategy thing is for me a game and a, a virtuous game of stepping up and stepping down, that you know when to step back, when to step forward, when you need courage and when you have to lower your power. So it's more the power with than the power over. Mm -hmm. to use um, to use that and then you create a certain balance amongst all the five styles mm. this move from style to strategy I think we have to be quite clear with people it, it takes a long time and it takes a lot of work it takes a consistent approach and desire to, to, to change and speaking about courage there's no there's no um, shame or weakness in asking for help with these things whether it's from a friend or a colleague or bringing in an external um, uh, conflict coach or expert to just you know, help with these types of things, whether it's a grand um, organizational change project or it's just somebody to, to, to speak with and get ideas and feedback and support and coaching and training from. There's no shame and there's great courage in asking for help. Yeah, exactly. And that is, again, something where, especially when you are in very senior positions, it's very lonely and you often don't have that help and you have possibly often a lot of yes-sayers around you who don't dare to disagree. So get some help or get a sparring partner, someone with whom you can train to have different styles and rehearse so that you can help others to be able to step up. I think that's, that's a fantastic start to start. I think that is something where top-down is really good because if leaders show and are the role models, others feel much more empowered to, to emulate that and step up. Susanna, thank you very much for your time again. Thank you.